Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Gina Chung on her debut novel, Sea Change. Gina Chung is a Korean-American writer from New Jersey, currently living in Brooklyn. She is a 2021-22 Centre for Fiction Susan Camel Emerging Writer Fellow and holds an MFA in Fiction from the New School. Her work appears or is forthcoming in the Kenyan Review, Catapult, Gulf Coast, Indiana Review and Idaho Review, among others. She is also the author of the forthcoming short story collection, Green Frog. And today we're going to be talking about Gina's debut novel, which is Sea Change. Gina, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. Pleasure to be here. First of all, tell us how you would describe Sea Change. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I typically call Sea Change a, a coming-of-age uh, novel set in the near future. There's some speculative elements. And the novel follows a 30-year-old Korean-American Roe who works at an aquarium. And uh, she is sort of dealing with a lot of changes and kind of struggling, to be honest. She's just been broken up with by her boyfriend, who um, is not just leaving her. He's leaving the planet shortly to be part of a privately funded mission to colonize Mars. And in the midst of this, she's sort of dealing with a, a strained relationship with her mother and uh, a changing relationship with her best friend, who also works at the aquarium with her. Um, one bright spot in Ro's life is Dolores, who is a giant Pacific octopus that she cares for at the aquarium. And Dolores also happens to be Ro's sort of last remaining connection to her marine biologist father, who once worked for the aquarium and discovered Dolores, but has since uh, been lost at sea about 15 years ago when the book opens. And the inciting incident of the book is um, that Ro learns uh, from her best friend Yoon Hee that Dolores is going to be sold to a private investor and will be moved outside of the aquarium. And so she starts to kind of spin out of control from there and really has to come to terms with the role that she's played in her failing or failed relationships and really just make sense of the, the traumas and the losses that she's endured over the last couple of years. So you've just given us some sort of description of, of who Roe is now. The book is set, I, mean, I was going to say, in the present day. It's not the present day, obviously, because it's, it's, it's sort of slightly in the future. But mm -hmm. what I mean is the book is set slightly in the future, but with flashbacks to the past, to her childhood. And tell us something about who Roe is then when she was younger, something about her relationship with her mother and father when they are before her father disappears. 
Yeah, so um, the novel is told in kind of um, an alternating sort of past-present structure throughout most of the book. Um, and doing that enabled me to explore some of those childhood sections that you mentioned and explore uh, who Ro is, where she comes from, what her family is like, and also, um, pretty importantly, the dynamic between her mother and her father. And so um, I think the earliest childhood scenes with Ro are kind of when she's she's pretty young, she's about seven to eight. And I would describe her as kind of a curious, uh, a curious kid, very, um, maybe a little bit anxious in some ways, but certainly has inherited this sort of love and interest in the world around her from her father, who's a scientist, of course. And um, one important backdrop of her childhood is that her parents have a pretty strange and turbulent marriage. Um, They both immigrated to the States from Korea as uh, young students. And, you know, since then, over the course of their relationship, they've gone through a lot of different stressors, as is pretty common for a lot of immigrant families. And Rose's mother in particular is sort of chafing at the kind of more traditional roles of like wife and mother that have been kind of, at least she feels, foisted on her. And Rose's father, on the other hand, he's, as I mentioned, very scientifically minded. He's kind of an adventurer adventurous wanderer type. And he um, is often really committed to these missions that take him, um, these research trips rather, that take him uh, over the seas and into very far off locales. And Ro's mother doesn't really understand that. And Ro is, feels kind of caught in between the two of them and often feels like that sometimes she wishes her family were more quote unquote normal. Um, but, you know, she finds herself empathizing with with both of them, even though ultimately she is a bit closer with her father just because they're more similar in that way. And her best friend, Yoonhee, they've actually been best friends since childhood. And so Yoonhee, on the other hand, is from a much more uh, kind of traditional family in some ways. Her parents do both work, but she has she has older sisters and she's from kind of like a loud, raucous family that's very close. And Ro sees all of that while growing up alongside Yoonhee and kind of wonders, you know, oh, what would have been like? had I had siblings. Uh, and there is a bit more, I don't want to spoil anything for readers, but there is a bit of uh, background in terms of like why Ro is an only child. Um, and that I think I just wanted to do that work to sort of um, fill out the texture of who she really is and, you know, the context that she's coming from as a as a daughter of immigrants and a Korean American woman. I was going to talk about Yoon here a bit later on, but you've um, you brought her up now. So I think you write really <laughs> brilliantly that sort of friendship where they are fundamentally friends from years back through proximity and they've sort of grown up and changed and so they're they're ostensibly best friends but don't really seem to like each other very much now (laughs) um well it's funny you say that because uh um I definitely have had the kinds of friendships where um especially like with old friends or maybe on the outside it's like oh why are you you know you're so different from one another what could you possibly have in common but I think when you have a really old friend like that, um, they become really precious to hold on to because that person kind of has access to this very early version of you that, you know, not very many people get to have, especially as you as you get older and, and go through other changes in life. Um, with Uni, I actually feel like, you know, they are best friends and they're very loyal to one another despite their their friction points. But I think with Yoonhee, that's, that's, it's almost like a love language thing where she kind of, the way that she expresses her affection for Ro is to sort of nag at her a little bit, almost like a sister would, to be like, you know, why can't you just get your life together? Be a little bit more like me. I'm happy, and then you'll be happy. <laughs> so, which of course, you know, is coming from a good place, but is not necessarily what what Ro needs or what most people would would. I think most people would kind of chafe at that kind of, <laughs> however well intentioned treatment from a friend. And over the course of the book, I really wanted to show how these two 
women who are extremely different and, you know, have grown apart in some ways, how they're able to sort of come to terms with who they both are and make space for one another in that way. Um, I think that's one of the really beautiful things about long-term friendships is that, uh, you know, people inevitably change no matter how similar they might be to start out. And what does it look like to be able to make space for one another and to change alongside a person? And I wanted there to be um, some grace for both of them in portraying that kind of relationship. So before we talk about what's happened to Rose's father and where, particularly where that's happened, let's talk about the time period in which the contemporary parts of the novel is set. So have you have you already mentioned it's like slightly in the future. This is a world that's pretty similar to our own, but clearly considerably warmer. So tell us about the particular time setting. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, as I mentioned, um, I consider it a near future narrative. And the way that I was describing it to people before the book came out was, um, I was kind of saying, uh, like, oh, you know, think of it as like five minutes in the future, you know, I don't think that there's anything in the book that like couldn't happen in our current world. Like, for example, Rose's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, rather, he's uh, joining a mission to colonize Mars. And you know, there are people working on that, investing in it and preparing for it as we speak. And, you know, I wanted to also depict this world in which the climate crisis is even more, more sort of urgent and yet ever present than it is in our current life. I mean, I think um, in terms of the ecological and the social impact that climate change has already had, like, you know, if you look, it's, it's all there, you know, you don't even have to be looking all that closely to see it, to see it impacting our day-to-day lives. But I do think that in our current world, it is rather easy at times to sort of like kind of put your head in the sand and be like, oh, well, winters are still cold, like things are still happening, according to how they were when I was a kid. But you know, of course, when you look at it from a big picture, incrementally, those changes are, they're actually really alarming to think about. And so I wanted to depict a world in which that sort of ambient dread and those kinds of impacts are ever present. And Dolores is actually a product of those kinds of um, those anomalies and those changes that have happened over time. Uh, she's a giant Pacific octopus, which is a real octopus species, but um, she's much larger than that species tends to get. And she's also been living for a very long time. And she's kind of spawned from this zone of the ocean that I made up for the book called the Bering Vortex that has become so polluted and just altered over time by warmed over oceans and the polar regions that it's just spawned completely new life. So, and in thinking about that, I was really inspired by um, other kinds of uh, dystopian slash speculative narratives, including um, there's this wonderful short story called The Gondoliers by Karen Russell. It was uh, published in her recent short story collection, Orange World. But in that one, she depicts uh, what she calls New Florida. It's this sort of um, post-apocalyptic Florida where, um, you know, there's been devastation wrought by the rising sea levels of climate change. But there is life and there is community and, you know, new sort of ecological systems that have come out of that. And so I was really curious about what does life look like in the midst of, you know, this kind of slow burning, um, yet very far reaching disaster. I was also reminded of that, the, the very real thing in the Pacific, where there is just that enormous area that's just like a sort of whirlpool of plastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are actually a couple different ones. Like I remember hearing about that too a couple years ago. And then when I was working on the novel, I was like kind of researching it because that was another thing I was I had in the back of my mind. And um there are multiple. It's it's very sad to see just the the devastating impact that um pollution has wrought on our oceans. It's just a fact of life and the animals and plant life of the sea just kind of live alongside it. 
And so what do the characters in the contemporary sections of the book think has happened to Rose's father? That's a great question. So so obviously Rose's father has gone missing along with the rest of the crew members on the research boat that he was on in the Bering Vortex. And I think Ro, um, you know, she's really, she's kind of hoping against hope that um, that he's alive out there. And so throughout the book, she gets these kind of mysterious phone calls from, you know, unknown numbers or numbers she doesn't recognize. And she starts to tell herself in this kind of um, wishful but understandable thinking, like, oh, maybe it's my dad. Maybe he's somewhere out there trying to reach me or checking in on me and somehow. Rose's mother, on the other hand, um, you know, it's been years since she last saw her husband. Things were already not fantastic between the two of them when he left on this last trip. She sort of really has to, despite having gone through her own grieving period, she has kind of mentally and emotionally forced herself to move on, which becomes a source of tension between uh, Roe and her mother later on in the book. And I think that Roe, I wanted it to be a little bit ambiguous in terms of how she personally feels about or or thinks really about um, what happened to her father. I, I think that's just true for anyone who's gone through moments of grief or have lost a loved one. There is a part of you that still feels so attached to the person that you can't help but think like, oh, well, whatever happened is not real. Like they're around. I know that they are. It's just I can't see or access them. And then there was a point in the book, uh, in the course of writing the book, where I did have to make a decision about like, you know, how much more attached Roe should stay to this idea that her father is around in some capacity. Um, And that was something that, you know, I went back and forth on with my editor a little bit. And then ultimately, we landed on the side of, you know, what would facilitate Roe's growth more as a person. And um, yeah, so that was something I definitely wrestled with and thought about a lot while writing the book. But I think, again, without trying to spoil anything, um, I think by the end of the book, there is she does come to terms with this idea that even if she'll never know what happened to her father, their relationship and their love that they shared does live on. And that's something that can't be really taken away. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gina Chung. We're talking about her debut novel, Sea Change. And Gina, I want to spend some time talking about Dolores then. So first of all, again, you mentioned what the the sort of inciting incident of the plot is, that mm-hmm. she's going to be basically sold. So let's just expand on that a little bit and talk about why that is happening. Yeah, I think that the, um, yeah, there's definitely an element in which, uh, that plot point, the, the climate crisis is playing a role in that. So, um, at the beginning of the novel, Roe notes that a lot of the animals, especially the particularly rare or more interesting ones are being bought up by private companies, by, uh, private entities. And Dolores is kind of the crown jewel of this otherwise not very notable, uh, mall aquarium in the suburbs of New Jersey. And she's being bought by this um, kind of Silicon Valley tech type guy who himself actually has a, a pretty uh, sizable knowledge of marine biology. And so when Ro meets the buyer, she's actually kind of surprised by the fact that this guy is not just some dilettante who wants to fill his home with cool creatures. But of course, she's torn by the fact that once Dolores is bought, she will herself, of course, no longer have access to this magnificent creature that she's really become bonded with over time. And also, you know, some of that plot point was a reflection of my own feelings of how um, the increasing privatization of a lot of industries um, and sectors of life, especially here in the States, like that's just led to increased inequities, lack of access. And there's a reason why a lot of um, a lot of publicly funded entities are losing money and are no longer able to provide the kinds of services that were, you know, once taken for granted a couple decades ago or even just a few years ago. I think that there is this sense of like, oh, well, tech and money can sort of figure all of our problems out if we just invest correctly. But, you know, those structures are not set up in place to take care of people or to educate people or to provide a kind of greater good for society. They're they're structured for profit. And so um, there is a kind of wrestling with that that Roe does throughout the course of the book. So yeah, that's kind of, uh, and a lot of that came from me just thinking a lot about the changes I've seen in my lifetime in public life and during the pandemic as well, which is when I was mostly writing the book. And just to widen that out as well, obviously the book wrestles with just the the very ethics of keeping large, intelligent marine animals captive in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that's something Ro uh, contends with as well, because of course she has such a deep respect for the life of of these beautiful creatures. And yet, you know, she's also, she's a scientist herself in a way. She's um, an educator and her father was someone who I think also had that, wrestled with that tension a bit where he was so fascinated by these kinds of creatures like Dolores and was really sort of energized by the possibilities of what we could learn from studying them up close. But of course he, you know, he loves the animals as well and doesn't want to see them in captivity. I think that's one of the reasons he, he goes out so often to the open ocean to study the animals in their natural habitat. If that's, you know, if he could, if he wasn't like a family guy, that's probably where he would be most of the time. There's like an an appalling sequence in the book where we see the consequences of a, um, I think it's a a Japanese aquarium that's basically run out of money and lost all its funding and and how that just is left with numerous large mammals still present in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that actually... I found I found out about a very similar case while I was researching. And so I thought about like, oh, how could I integrate this into the novel and fictionalize it? But yeah, it, it does happen, you know, when you have these institutions that are, you know, set up for entertainment, education purposes. And then if they lose funding, then, you know, oftentimes the animals are the collateral that um, unfortunately end up either being abandoned or just really not taken care of in the way that they that they should be. So 
um, it felt important to me to include um, that kind of narrative as well. Could you tell us something more about the um, the, the real life giant Pacific octopus? Sure. So um, the giant Pacific octopus, they're, they are, I believe, the largest octopus species in the world. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head how large they actually can be, but maybe it's something like, you know, the wingspan of a person who's much taller than me. <laughs> but, you know, they're not like um, they're not like necessarily the size of a house or anything like that. Dolores, on the other hand, uh, I've kind of made her uh, much larger than life, as I mentioned. She sort of takes up an entire room in a tank of her own. But I mean, octopuses themselves are just so fascinating. They're incredibly intelligent animals. And as anyone who watched My Octopus Teacher uh, knows, the the Netflix documentary, they're capable of forming deep uh, and very kind of lasting bonds with humans. Um, They actually don't live for very long. I believe giant Pacific octopuses only live about three to five years or so. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that is because they're actually like, one of the reasons that scientists speculate on that is, is they're like, oh, they're actually too, they're too smart. If they live for longer, it would, it would cause problems and in their ecosystems. But yeah, they're they're just endlessly fascinating creatures. And I learned so much about octopuses in general when I was researching the novel. One of the most haunting things I learned is that um, I think this is true across different octopus species, but female octopuses can really only spawn once before they die. And so once they you know have a clutch of eggs that they are responsible for, they kind of cease to uh, feed or hunt or even really take care of themselves. And like their whole focus is just waiting on these eggs to hatch until they gradually die and fade away while while waiting. And I thought, oh my gosh, one, that's that's so horrifying um, and sad, but also what a like interesting, potentially fertile metaphor for like the expectations that society has for mothers in general. You know, I think Ro herself deals with that in the course of the book too, where she kind of thinks to herself, like that's sort of the model of motherhood that she was sort of, that she sort of saw in her own family, where she felt like her mother had to give up everything in order to take care of the family, to take care of herself. Like, you know, what kind of guilt does that leave a person with? And so, yeah, I, 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 when I came across that fact, I knew I, I needed to put it into the book too and sort of explore um, what observing that kind of phenomenon, what kind of impact that would have on Roe, who's this person who identifies so closely with octopuses and with Dolores. Yeah, that sort of ideas around motherhood. Um, there's scenes where she takes care of her cousin's child, for instance. Um, one of the one of the sort of ideas that Roe is sort of wrestling with, but also just the you know the the grief still lingering grief of losing her father, the recent loss of her boyfriend as well. Um, and we find her in the sort of contemporary section of the novel, just sort of rather directionless and binge drinking and stuff. And but it also made me think about wider idea of not just Roe herself, but basically like the whole millennial generation sort of living in precarity and late capitalism on a dying planet as well. You know, it seems to reflect that wider idea in Roe's own experience. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I've heard that. I've definitely heard the term, you know, millennial literature used to describe those kinds of stories. There's also um, maybe more pejoratively, people will talk about like sad girl stories or like the disaster woman trope. And these are all things that I, you know, I had not really, I was not familiar with these terms until, you know, reviews of the book started coming out. Um, and most of the early reviews were actually very, very lovely and very positive, which I was very grateful for. But there were, um, I think, a couple of reviews where they were like, oh, well, you know, I don't understand why this protagonist is so aimless and sad and, you know, so self-destructive. <laughs> 
all of which is fair. I mean, I think if if that's not the kind of narrative that people are interested in reading, that's totally fine. But I would say that, you know, as you're pointing out, this sort of maybe almost generational kind of sense of aimlessness or ennui, like that's not happening in a vacuum, right? Like we are, as a millennial myself, like we are coming of age as a generation that I, I forget what the exact statistic is, but like, we're like the first generation that's projected to like have less financial security than the generation that came before. And, you know, in my own lifetime, I've witnessed several like, you know, national, international financial collapses, just all kinds of upendings of expectations of of the world and of the kind of security that we were supposed to inherit. Um, so I, it's not surprising to me that a lot of the work of my contemporaries and of many, many writers who I, I deeply admire, it's not surprising to me that their work is sort of grappling with that, whether it's through these sorts of ideas of like characters that are self-sabotaging in some way, or, you know, maybe in even more overtly speculative mode. So um, it's definitely a phenomenon that I think is is reflective of the concerns and the preoccupations and anxieties of our world. And in terms of like the the idea of quote unquote sad girl literature, I do think that that is absolutely kind of gendered. Um, I mean, I I love a sad girl story because <laughs> um, I think it's I always want to know about, you know, characters that are a little bit broken, a little bit confused, a little bit aimless. Um, of course, you know, by the end of a kind of traditional narrative, you do want to see some kind of growth or at least some kind of change that pushes that character to making active decisions or at least coming to understand themselves a little better. But I think whenever someone has sort of, you know, talked about, again, this idea of sad girl literature in a kind of condescending way, it makes me think, well, you know, why do you think that these women, these fictional characters are sad? It's because being a woman is often pretty sad and difficult and challenging. It doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, I, for instance, I'm like, I'm not wandering around thinking about how hard I have it all the time. But it's just life is inherently quite difficult for many of us, not just women and women identified folks. And I think for literature to reflect that is really important and necessary. You mentioned that most of the, the speculative ideas in this novel are things that pretty much could happen now, like, for instance, the um, private mission to Mars. Although, to be fair, I must admit my, my opinion on that is that the um, the recent Titanic submersible debacle probably tells you all you need to know about whether or not you should get on a, um, a private mission to Mars in the future. <laughs> but um, of all of the things, obviously, that, you know, climate change is significantly worse. There's a potential mission to Mars. Of all of the things that we don't quite have now, the one that I found most terrible was the um, the dating app Comb. Tell me about that. Oh, oh my gosh, that's so funny you mentioned it. Yeah, so Comb is a dating app that um, I invented for the book, but again, it's probably one of those things that like is being developed or will be available soon <laughs> on the markets. But the idea of Comb is that it's an online dating app, but it's different from other kinds of dating apps in that it doesn't require you to fill out a profile or answer any questions. All you have to do is join it and let it kind of sync up to all of your phone data. And the idea is that the algorithms attached to this app are sophisticated enough that it can analyze all of your, your social data, your browsing history, your even your messages, and kind of um, calculate your, your optimal perfect match with someone else who has um, opted to join this app. And um, there's also a, a, a mode in Comb called Honey Mode, where when you switch it on, this is the idea that you're already with someone maybe that you've matched with on the app. And it gives you, it gives the user the option to keep that app kind of running in the background on each other's phones. And then it'll analyze, in addition to your data, your significant other's data so that you can kind of determine the best way to like give them a present for your anniversary. And, you know, it's, 
the idea behind me creating this app was that, you know, here's this world in which capitalism and the ideas of like what tech can do, they're sort of naively trying to kind of solve the problems of romance and conflict that happen in any relationship. And of course, you know, Ro is like kind of horrified by this, but her best friend Yoonhee really takes to it. And that's kind of how she meets her, her boyfriend, now fiance. So yeah, comb is uh, it's a scary, a scary invention, but it's it's probably gonna be something that is real in the next couple of years, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the the absolute most horrifying part of it is that idea that the app will be able to tell you the perfect gift to buy your partner, which just seems just so like just takes any joy out of it whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, I think some people would want it, though, you know, like there are people who really think that optimization via tech is like the way to solve all of life's problems. Just one more thing then for me, and I'll ask you to, to read us a bit for us, if you would. The novel is set in, in New Jersey, and that's also where you grew up. And I just wanted to, to ask you just something about not that many novels are set in New Jersey, I guess, not least, you know, compared to New York, just over the river. So um, just tell us something about the setting. Yeah, uh, well, I am a um, a New Jersey native. And uh, yes, New Jersey often kind of has a bit of a tarnished reputation in the States. It's, you know, the joke is like, if you say you're from New Jersey, the other person is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, and I didn't really have any particular connections to my hometown until I went away to college in Massachusetts in the Northeast and like in New England. And um, it wasn't until I was away from home that I began to really appreciate, um, you know, the the parts of the suburbs that I'd felt really like kind of stultified or, or sick of when I was growing up in them. There's a lot of there's a big car culture in New Jersey. So a lot of my fondest memories of coming of age in Jersey were in my friends' cars, with windows down, blasting music. Um, and there's a kind of poetry to, to, I think, the landscape of New Jersey, to its interesting kind of political positionality in the States as sort of New York City's kind of um, often overlooked kind of younger brother, so to speak. But I have a lot of love and affection for my home state. And I I don't think he really appears in the book in any way, but I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. So I listened to a lot of Springsteen while I was working on the book. Um, and I think this sort of, there's a reason he's kind of considered like the singer laureate of New Jersey because he his his anthems are often about the lives of overlooked people, working class folks, people kind of struggling to make ends meet, but who still kind of hope at the end of the day for better. Um, and the specific community that Roe has grown up in is this sort of Korean American community that I uh, grew up around as well in northern New Jersey. And I, as you mentioned, I've never really seen that in in literature. And so I really wanted to to write about it and to kind of pay homage a bit to this uh, this unique world that I grew up in. So to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'll just read close to the beginning of the book. And this is a section about Dolores. Dolores is somewhere between 18 and 25 years old, so technically, she's younger than me. But by sea creature standards, she's practically nonagenarian. In addition to being one of the last known giant Pacific octopuses in the world, she has the prestige of having been spawned in one of the most polluted zones of our warmed-over oceans, the Bering Vortex, where my father disappeared 15 years ago on what was supposed to be a routine research trip. I've saved and studied just about every known photo of the Vortex. I've made notes on the sheen of its waters, which are red and green and violet with toxins and spills from the refineries in Alaska. I've imagined going there myself to look for my father. Officially, he's listed as missing, presumed dead. I don't know if that last part is true, though. Sometimes I get calls from unknown numbers or numbers with area codes I don't recognize, and when I pick up, I swear I can hear waves of sound, spray and roar or breathing, 
the voice that sounds like it's trying to break through. When I first told Amma about the calls, she said it was just perverts or spam, but I can't shake the thought that it might be Appa, that somewhere out there, he might still be trying to find his way back, and that the calls are his way of checking in, of letting me know that he's thinking about me, wherever he is. The Bering Vortex isn't on any of the Alaskan cruise stops. The only people who go there are pollution tourists or researchers. The creatures that have managed to survive, mutate, and breed there, passing on their irrevocably altered genetic material over the last few decades, are biblical in size and shape and hard to see or catch. Climate scientists and marine biologists alike haunt the vortex, hoping for a sign of them, for a chance to discover what's allowed them to continue living under such harsh conditions. When Dolores was first caught, she was about 15 feet long and still growing, and powerful and smart enough that they had to lid her tank with iron. Now there's more than 20 feet of her, and her round, wicked eyes are the size of classroom globes, the kind I used to spin and place my finger on when I was a kid, trying to guess where I would land when the spinning stopped. So I've been talking to Gina Chung. We've been talking about her debut novel, Sea Change, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Gina, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much, Neil. So fun talking to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.